0: Do you like older women? Yes.
1: (laughs) Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton.
2: My name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed big, brilliant, bad Chip
1: Conley. Chip is a legend. He actually went to business school with Seth Godin and they had a... Young Entrepreneurs Club, he told us about where they are uh, the youngest five people in the course used to get together once a week and talk about business ideas. Mm. Uh, and so, he his main business was uh, a range of hotels. I think he had 52 hotels that he built and eventually sold. And now he mentors the guys at Airbnb as the hospitality and leadership guru.
2: Yes. So, we also did Peak during the week, which is all about, you know, job, career, calling. We dive deeper into this idea of the climb. So, you know, if you find yourself somewhere in the bottom of the hierarchy, kind of climbing, mm. the things you can do to get up there and increase your own motivation
1: that's it mate. and he invited us to his uh, 55th birthday party
2: yeah we'll we'll see him there and um we'll would to think we also talk a bit about Bur- do we talk about burning man
1: we did talk about burning man yeah, he's on the he's on the board of the the burning man festival mm. um which yeah he gave us a, a real sort of behind the scenes look at burning man mm. mate chip 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 chip
2: We loved uh, we loved reading Peak, and one of the things I've got from reading your books, you've, it seems like you're half businessman, but at the same time, you're obviously inspired by like Eastern traditions and a bit of the Dalai Lama kind of stuff. So, how do these two kind of different things, you know, two different worlds, where do they meet?
0: Um, you know, I like to call it karmic capitalism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? what... What goes around comes around. And I, I do believe that that's true. I think sometimes in business, the question is, how long does it take to come around? Because there's sometimes people who are short-term players in the market, and they sort of are jerks, but they make a lot of money. And, and that may be true, and karma hasn't hit them yet. But, <laughs> but the reality is, I think that um, my own personal experience is that um, uh, e- while we often forget it, the most neglected fact in business is that we're all human. And so I think understanding the human condition and understanding the motivations of humans is fundamental to being a great long term leader and certainly a great role model. And so that's led me to studying not just Eastern traditions, but that's been true, but also Western psychologists mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. My um, last two books, Peak and Emotional Equations, were based upon two Western psychologists, Abraham Maslow and then Viktor Frankl, and so I, I you know, I, I will say that um, understanding psychology is to me probably the greatest value um, of being a great leader.
1: Um, I, I was just saying before I read Peak, I thought I should read the original uh, Maslow's uh, Theory of Human Motivation, uh, and I, I really liked how you took that one uh, idea, I guess and made it something very clear and very tangible, very applicable to the business side of things and to all levels of business. I guess, uh, why Maslow and why Frankel? And, and uh, what did you think that these specific uh, psychologists could apply so well to business if you took it and applied it?
0: Yeah. And I was not a psychology major. I took one psychology class in college. And when I was in graduate business school, I, I you know, in the organizational development, part of that uh, MBA program, we, we studied a little bit as well. What I remembered was I was going through a very difficult time in 2001. Uh, we were the largest hotelier in the San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley. And the dot-com bust was happening. And so I was trying to figure out how to get through this difficult time. And sometimes that means you would end up in the business section of the bookstore, which I did for about 10 minutes, and quickly I ended up in the self-help section, psychology section of the bookstore, which is where I got reacquainted with Maslow. And the reason Maslow was intriguing to me was he basically, instead of focusing on people's worst practices, which is what a lot of psychologists do, um, and their their deficiencies, he focused on what was at the top of the pyramid, self-actualization. How do you help people flourish? And when I started reading this, I said, well, gosh, that's what a company does. A company, if they're doing their job right, creates the conditions for people to be transformed and to live their calling. And so I started, even at the bottom of a downturn, I started asking how we could apply this famous psychology theory to an organization, because our organization was full of humans. And so we did. And you know, against all odds, we um, in a very difficult time when a lot of our competitors sh- shrank a lot or went bankrupt, we tripled in size. So between 2001 and 2006, um, of my company tripled in size in terms of revenues. And um, that was at a time when the market was shrinking. So it. I said, okay, I better write about this because I think it, it really helped us a lot. And so then I started studying other companies out there and found that there are a lot of companies from Apple to Zap. Well, Zappos hadn't been created yet. That Actually, no, Zappos hadn't been created at that point. Zappos was around. They were actually using Maslow. Uh, Apple was. Southwest Airlines uh, here in the U.S. did. And I uh, Whole Foods Markets did. And I found that there are all these companies that had used Maslow, but they never actually talked about it. So that, that's why I wrote the book. And then Frankl was I, studying his book, Man's Search for Meaning, led me to a, a bit of a revelation myself about understanding the inverse proportions of meaning and um, and despair. Once, If you can find meaning in your life, your despair re- is reduced. So that's, uh, you know, th- but I, I got to tell you, the part that's interesting and the pro- reason that I write these books is because as a practitioner and an entrepreneur – uh, I love making sense of what I'm learning. And if you're going to go out and write a book or go out and give speeches, you better actually know what the hell you've learned along the way. And when you learn that and, it, and writing a book right, forces that, um, you're also giving back to others. And I like that as well.
1: Fantastic. So I like how you took Maslow's five levels uh, and turned them into three. Three is easy to remember. So you've got uh, your survive at the bottom succeed in the middle and transform at the top and I also at the same time read a, you know a whole bunch of other books that talk about oh you know you can have a job a career or a calling but when you took the job career calling and applied it to your three levels it really uh, tied it all together for me so can you give us a, a quick rundown of the, the three levels of the job the career and the calling and how people can uh, importantly move up take that climb towards the top
0: Well, one of the things that's interesting about a pyramid as an organizing principle is it suggests that as you move up it, it, fewer people uh, necessarily um, actually go with you up to the top of the pyramid. So, And when we talk about a pyramid here, we're not talking about any kind of organizational chart. This is just the idea that um, at the base of the pyramid, everybody has a job. But as you move up the pyramid, meaning up the pyramid uh, from survival to success – you have a career and um, the, qual- the the qualifications or the, or the motivations and the, and the reasons why you go to work, if it's a career, might be different than for a job. And I'll come back to that. And then at the top of the pyramid, and, and what is very rare, is for people to feel a sense of calling. And the three levels that define the employee pyramid are uh, at the base, it's um, money or compensation. Uh, in the middle is recognition. And at the top is meaning. So to, to recap, you know, when someone has a job, they're focused on money or the compensation package. And that's the predominant thing that's important to them. And that creates some base level of, of motivation, but not a lot of inspiration. And frankly, maybe not a career path. Nobody has a job path. You have a career path. <laughs> so uh, uh, the second level, that success level, is what, when, when somebody actually is feeling... Uh, the sense of career um, they're feeling success and that's where recognition comes you know the, the, there's a, a lot of studies in australia as well as the u.s that have shown that the number one reason people leave their job is not because of money it's because of a lack of recognition typically from the boss so that you join a company but you leave your boss and so that middle level of the pyramid is just a explicit recognition that recognition is important And then companies can actually go out and study how are they creating recognition? What's a recognition culture like? What are the active things that you do as an organization to recognize people, not when they do something wrong, but when they do something right? Because we're really good usually at catching people do something wrong. Um, But that's beautiful. But frankly, the companies that are most successful in the world, um, I'll say that again, the companies that are most successful in the world are those that. Help people get to that place where they've moved beyond just their job or their career. But they literally are doing work that gives them a sense of meaning. And that's the top of the pyramid. So it goes money, recognition, meaning. And meaning, If you could have meaning in one of two ways. There's meaning in work and there's meaning at work. Meaning in work means that the work that you do on a daily basis gives you great inspiration. You really enjoy the job function that you have no matter where, where you're working. Um, that's important, uh, and a lot of companies do that well. And then there's the other piece, which is meaning at work, which means you feel a sense of mission in the work that you're doing because of what the organization's per- purpose or mission is. And so the, the, a lot, you know, when I joined Airbnb, we were really good at the second one. Uh, there was a real sense of meaning at work here at Airbnb. When I joined, gosh, more than five years ago in early 2013, um, we hadn't yet come up with the language of belong anywhere, but we were definitely clear that you know we wanted people to live like a local and travel like a human, and a variety of things that sort of helped people feel like they're turning strangers into friends. We were not nearly as good at the at the first one, which was meaning in work, helping people understand the work that they're doing and what is it, how is it impacting the purpose of the company. So. Some companies are good at the first, some companies are good at the second, the best companies in the world are good at both of them and an employee feels a sense of meaning partly because of the work that they do but also because of the purpose of the company.
2: Yeah, awesome. And if we go from the employee's perspective and say someone's listening right now and they don't have a lot of meaning in their work, I mean personally if I caught the train on a Monday morning, it, it seems that you know there's not so many people who's even at level two of the pyramid or even even at the very top. So say if right now they've got no meaning and they feel like they're toward the bottom, what should they do as, as the next move to, you know, live a more meaningful life?
0: Well, I think the thing, you know, back in the, the last chapter uh, of my book uh, or the next to last chapter, I think it is, um, I have a, a, an exercise where someone can actually determine whether they have a job, a career or a calling. And they, they could actually sort of see what does it take to get to a place of a calling or a career in the work that you do. Typically, if you're to try to find meaning uh, on a, in terms of the meaning in work, in terms of the day-to-day things you're doing, you need to first get clear on like what is it that you love doing? What are you talented at? What, is, what are the things that come naturally to you? Uh, sometimes those are things that are obvious when you were 10 years old. Um, it, it's not just things you were trained for. It's the things that you are sort of – you live for. Um, so I think that's one piece of it is, is understanding that, but then there's the other piece, which is you want to actually be working in an organization where the culture of the organization and the purpose and mission of of the organization are meaningful to you. And, you know, but you, you could actually look at like, what is it that you as a customer or, you know, what are, what are companies that you really, um, fancy or you're an evangelist for? What areas, what kind of what kind of products are they? You might find that you love riding motorcycles. And you know being a motor, you do that as a hobby, but wouldn't it be interesting if you went to work for a company that was creating a new kind of motorcycle or even an old school motorcycle? Um, but you really loved the product. and you and so you didn't really care. Whether you were in the strategic team or in the finance team or in the marketing team, you were pretty talented. You had, you know, maybe you have a, a, a an advanced degree in management, and you're just saying, "I like the product. I like what they're doing." And and you know, just having a motorcycle, uh, you know, good, it's a good example because it means it's not like it's saving the world. You know, I think you know gr- there's lots of great organizations that have a very beautiful purpose, but they're not saving the world. The, their purpose is to actually improve a product that makes people happy. Great that's fine if you're one of those customers who loves that kind of product you might want to work for a company like that so uh, you know the key is to really do a, initially do an evaluation of you know what's your state of meaning in work and at work with where you are and then try to determine which is the what you know which is the one that you can actually try to fix if you were to go somewhere else
1: love it do you think most people know that there are levels above them? I can I can see some people probably start their first job and they think this is it. Maybe they don't realize that a job can be more than a job. It could be a career or a calling if they moved higher up the ladder.
0: I think you know what's interesting is in the era we live in today. I think there are more and more people who know that that's available to them. Partly because you see, as you know, you guys are younger. How old are you guys?
1: Twenty twenty seven.
0: I love it. So you you know you're you're um, millennials, um, and you have a point of view, which is like, my God, those three Airbnb founders—they were 26 and 24 when they started Airbnb, and you know now they're billionaires. So there's an element that in, historically in the past um, you did not see younger people starting companies that went global in an, an enormously fast scale, like we do today. And therefore it means that, wow, you can look at people and say, I wish I was more like them. And, and it's within the realm of reason to imagine it. 40 years ago that was not within the realm of reason. Therefore, some, because some of our heroes for people in your generation are actually young business leaders, it actually gives people the imagination. As opposed to it's just athletes or entertainers. Now, athletes and entertainers, People who say, "Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to be more like them," but you know, unless unless you're a great athlete or you've you know a great singer or uh, artist or musician, you just know you don't have the talent to do that. But for a lot of people, they may have a great idea, and there's a singular idea that actually starts you know the light bulb goes on on uh, above their head, and they start to say, "Wow, what if I turn that idea into a business? Could it be successful?" And I think that that when someone starts to think that way, they've moved out of this place of like, oh, all I need is just a job.
1: Mm. Uh, I've got one, uh, I guess, issue that I I think a lot of people are starting to fall into. And as you say, uh, having seen these guys, we're making lots of money really quickly. And I'll I'll put myself in that category and that – uh, they think every time they're an employee it's a job and the only way to get to their calling is to, you know, quit and start a business and become a billionaire. Um can you knock that one out of the park for us? Because I'm sure there's sometimes where running your own business can be a job or working as an employee could be a calling.
0: Yeah, so I I will speak for myself. I was uh, you know, I started a hotel company at age twenty-six, same age as the uh, uh the Airbnb founders. No, we're behind um, the um, eight-ball. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, no, so I started it and I grew it for 24 years and was CEO and grew it to second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. That was a calling. But when I joined Airbnb as an employee and as Brian, uh, the co-founder and CEO's mentor, and then he, but I also reported to, to him as head of global hospitality and strategy, this became a calling as well. I mean, going to work for a company that was growing this fast and knowing that I had picked up some wisdom along the way. That could be valuable to this young company full of millennials. And here I am, a baby boomer who felt like maybe I was irrelevant in my fifties.
1: Mm, fantastic! That's sort of the end of our peak stuff. We've got a whole bunch of random stuff now. <laughs> we're going to jump around a little. Yeah, bit. random little little, <laughs> little machine gun fire, if you
2: don't mind. But uh, toward the end of the book, we were chatting before you got on the. You, uh, before sorry, toward the end of the year, you've got a new book coming out called Wisdom yeah. at Work. Um, could you start by telling us a little bit about? what this problem, the problem this book really solves?
0: So it's a, it, it was a fun book to write because it was, an, a, I love it when a book just sort of hits you on the head and impregnates you. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I, that's not, I mean, that's I, not normally I, how you get pregnant. But, yeah, uh, there's no, no, no visuals here. But I, <laughs> what I'll say is that I just had, I had been working at Airbnb for about two and a half years had noticed that, um, when I first joined here, I was twice the age of the average employee. Um, and so, and I'd never worked in a tech company before. Um, and so I was supposed to be the mentor of the CEO, Brian, and I was supposed to be the, you know, the person who knew the hospitality industry and head of strategy. But the truth is I didn't understand like the most basic lingo being talked around here. And so what I got to realize pretty quickly is that, um, there's a new era coming, which is the era of a person who's got some experience, um, who can actually give back to a bunch of younger people who are brilliant geniuses in a new technology, but they actually don't have the emotional intelligence nor leadership skills or maybe the strategic thinking, and they could use someone who has a little bit of that good judgment and insight. And so what I realized is that the traditional elder of the past so the subtitle of Wisdom at Work is The Making of a Modern Elder. The traditional elder of the past was somebody who just sat at the pulpit and spouted wisdom. And you just, you know. But the truth is that if someone's doing that in their 50s or 60s today and they're just spouting wisdom, it's probably old shit. It's like it's <laughs> like it's stuff from the past. And some of the stuff from the past is going to be relevant, but a lot of it's not. Mm-hmm. So I think a modern elder is somebody who is as much an intern. As they are a mentor or as much a student as they are a sage and so what, what came to me was the idea that what if, what if we created a whole new approach to intergenerational wisdom transfer such that I might have some EQ emotional intelligence I can teach you based upon being on this planet you know a few more decades and you have some DQ, some digital intelligence you can teach me. So it's an EQ for DQ alliance or, mm. or trade agreement. And um, as such, it, it, we're both better off. And I do think that this is a, a, a new way of thinking, and it's an important way of thinking because there are, for the first time ever, there are five generations in the workplace at the same time.
1: Mm, totally. We're looking forward to that one. I believe uh, September 2018 is the, the release date I saw. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like uh, this idea of, of mentorship is, is strong in this book,
2: so the young person asking the older mm-hmm. person for a bit of advice. Did you have mentors in in your journey, and, and do you think they're of vital importance?
0: You know, I I think that they are not vital, but I think that they're value. There's a value to them. Um, my father was a mentor for me, although it was really hard to take advice from my dad. Um, <laughs> uh, he was a business person. He is a business person. Um there's a guy named Herb Kelleher who started, who is a co founder and CEO of uh, Southwest Airlines. Back in the day when I was young, you know, there were no cell phones, there were no email, there were no, you know, there were no iPhones. There were no, basically, I wrote a letter to the guy. He lived in Dallas, Texas. And I asked him a few questions and I asked him if he would mentor me from afar. And he wrote me back. And he did. And so we started a pen pal relationship with a guy who was CEO of uh, what became the, the biggest airline in the US, um, uh, at least in, for domestic travel. And, um, and what what came out of that was my feeling like, okay, well, I, I like to give back. So I get you know inquiries all the time from people today um, who are looking for a mentor. I can't mentor everyone, but I can try to answer questions or emails or, uh, and do my best to to give back and on occasion be mentored by some young person who can teach yeah. me something as well.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. That's a great answer. Uh, so I like that uh, you talked about the value of mentoring there. We're going to jump to our next random part which is the, the value of education. So we had uh, Seth Godin on uh, earlier and I believe you and Seth are in the the same class and he, he's talked about the, uh, the business planning sessions is- in the yeah. anthropo- anthrop- anthropology department. Is that right? <laughs>
0: We had these. We had a young uh, Seth and I were part of. There are five of us in a young entrepreneur group. It was the five youngest people in our Stanford Business School class, and we used to go over to the anthropology section to have our meetings, uh, along with pizza and beer. And uh, yeah, Seth's a great guy.
1: So how do you how do you um so you you did your MBA very very uh, young I would say. What, how do you uh, what do you think about the value of an education and uh, you know someone thinking oh, I want to get into business so I'll do an MBA.
0: I mean, I think that, you know, the upside to an education is it, it's certainly something you can always fall back on. There's a beautiful liberal arts, you know, um, um, framework you can have. And certainly you can have a lot of fun uh, in, in school, both undergrad and graduate school. But is it is it essential and required? No. I mean, I think it's uh, if you have the opportunity and you have the funds to be able to do it um, and you have the time then I think it's worth it. Um, uh, you know, Rarely is it not worth it. But um, I think that in terms of business school, I, th- I don't think business school is as important as undergrad is. I think undergrad is sort of like a, a minimum standard that people expect. Um, and there's a lot of people I know who did not go and do, finish their undergrad who regret, and, and they actually go back and finish it in their 30s, 40s, or 50s because it, they're a, a little bit embarrassed about it. They don't have a good degree. Um, so, so, you know, it's something to do. I think it's, a, it's, it's worth doing. It's worth doing. But, to, but the number one thing is figuring out what it is that makes you passionate. And the bottom line is, you know, generally speaking, college doesn't do that very well. So if you think college is the place where they're going to spoon feed you such that you will figure out what you're passionate about, then you have, a, you have a bad idea about college. You really need to go out and seek that out yourself. And you may not actually learn that at college in a classroom. You actually may learn it from your friends and you know the exposures you get in college to other people, and that brings you to the place where you, you figure out what you're passionate about.
1: Fantastic. We've got one more random one for you as well. You're on the board of Burning Man. You talked about in, in PK, you got to make the pilgrimage every year. Um, For someone who's never been but has heard a lot about it, what is Burning Man? Who goes? Why do they go? I've heard of um, people having different kind of peak experiences there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not naturally. (laughs) That
0: that is true, but not everybody. So it's interesting. I've been on the board of Burning Man for seven years now. And um, Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, I I, I went out there with him in in 2013. And what he said is, you know, Burning Man is what the world would be like if uh, artists ruled the world. And I think that's pretty accurate. It is it is an art festival uh, with hundreds of pieces of art um, throughout the whole area and art camps and things like that. So just know that that's what Burning Man is first and foremost. Yes, there's a lot of other elements to Burning Man. There is the utopian community component, which is like, you know, there's it's decommoditized. So... Other than coffee and ice, you don't buy anything. Everything's basically traded with each other. Everybody's just like free. Everybody. So it's it's sort of a world where you just don't have to have a currency other than a smile. Your your smile and your and your and your karma is your currency. Um, but I think yes, do people party hardy and get naked and do drugs, etc. Yes, all of that happens there. But does it happen for everybody? No. I mean, there's actually even. Burning Man has about seventy thousand people. There's about six thousand people who are in a family camp. Literally, it's RVs and tents of families with you know ten year olds and t- six year olds with their family. And I promise you, they're they're not they're not uh, you know doing ecstasy. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so you know you can go and have an experience at Burning Man being sober, um, but. You know some of the wildest times that Burning Man happen at nighttime, and it's you know usually with all the bright lights and the colors and all that. And for some people, yes, they they use um, uh, hallucinogens and other things to actually accentuate that.
2: Yeah, yes, it definitely sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so as we get toward the end now, what are, what books have been impactful on your life that you can recommend for our listeners? You
0: know, um, I. I like Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness. Um, I like uh, the book I recently read was called The Happiness Project. Um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning is Victor Frankel's famous book. That, that's a book that is you know existential in terms of understanding why you're on this earth. Um, what else? Those are those I think are some of my favorites. I'm actually I'm a big fan of Danny Meyer, who's a famous restaurateur in the U.S. Um, who wrote a book called Setting the Setting the Table. Um, and that's a, that's a beautiful book on understanding the service and hospitality industry.
1: Yeah, nice. And you've obviously read a lot of books because at the end of every chapter, there was you know, 10 yeah. book recommendations. Um, yeah,
0: I, my my home is full of 4,000 books. Oh, oh my, nice. my God.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: I, I, yeah, it's, it's crazy.
1: I'm up to about 400 maybe, but that's a, I've got a long way to go, obviously. You're a youngster. So you uh you have got yeah, your—you still got um, you know a bit of hotel businesses running on the side. you a bit of Airbnb mentoring. You're doing a lot of speaking. You got this new book. Um, what's what are the projects you're working on? Or what's coming up next for for Chip?
0: Well, the thing that's interesting is I actually was profiled on maybe Good Morning Australia recently, I think, or Good Morning Sydney or something. It was a story about the fact that I'm creating this thing called the Modern Elder Academy. Uh, in Mexico, so it's a it's a nonprofit um, school uh, or uh, academy that's on three acres of beachfront in Mexico, where people come in midlife, and I you know midlife is as young as thirty seven, as old as seventy two. That's we've had people in that age range, but it's mostly forty five to sixty five, and they come to actually reimagine how they're going to live the the rest of their life. Uh, now that we're all living longer. And now that power is moving younger, so we're going to live 10 or 15 years longer than our parents, but power is moving 10 years younger because of the fact that digital intelligence is so important. So if you do the math, it means that if you're like, you know, 45 or older, you have 20 or 25 years of additional irrelevancy because you're going to live longer and power is going younger. So the question is how do we – how do we create a place for people to repurpose and rewire themselves in midlife? So that's what we're—that's what I'm doing. Uh, we're in the beta program of it right now. We've had 150 people go through either a week-long or two-week-long program so far. And it opens to the public in November. And I've already – because I was in that damn good morning, Sydney, or good morning, <laughs> I've had a lot of Australians write us. And we've even had some Australians. Australians even come in the beta program. But um, the website for the modernelderacademy.org will not be up until about July 1.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And also, I just as we finish it now, so I've. That's <laughs> more of so. <laughs> it asked. He says, um, I read that you throw a big party every five years, a birthday party. Yeah. Is that right? Was, yeah, I,
0: you've, done, you've done your research. Yeah. I, like it. I was just yeah. going to
2: ask yeah. if, because um, obviously you have like Seth Godin and her. I forget who you mentioned earlier, but it's it's the Airbnb founders and all these really cool crew. And I was thinking, <laughs> um, us too. You know, we're pretty cool and we're we're young, strapping lads. And you know, all you older crew might want some um, younger guys coming in there, to liven yeah. up the party. I was just saying if um if you want us to to rock up.
0: Do you like older women?
2: Yes. <laughs> I've got a girlfriend but she might
0: um, she oh, okay. might give me the ticket right. of approval. Uh, yes. I, I, listen, my birthday parties every five years are pretty epic. We've had them in everywhere from Bali to – but not the Kuda part of Bali that you guys hang out in. We are more up at the Ubud part of Bali. Um, uh, we've been in Morocco. We've been at Burning Man for the party. We've been in Mexico. Um, so we've had birthday party all over the world. Um, so I, I, what I love doing is just saying, listen, I started my company and called it Joie de vivre. So my whole inspiration in life is to find that French phrase, joy of life, and live it. And so that's what I do.
2: Nice. Guess I'll see nice. you in Ubud. In the- <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding.
1: Uh, actually,
0: weirdly enough, I am going to Ubud two days from now. So two nights from now, I'm on my way to, to Bali, nice. my 14th trip to, there.
1: I'm on my way to Bali uh, next Friday. I'll probably miss you. But the re- <laughs> the reason I thought uh, I asked uh, one of our previous guests, she offered yoga lessons, and I I took it seriously. It was more of a rhetorical <laughs> remark. So I thought I thought that one might fall. I've flat. Had a few jokes that just <laughs> fall flat in a lot of our interviews, yeah. so it was a bit worried there. But just to just to finish it up, where can um, people find more about you and and your books?
0: You can go to Chip Kindly, Conley, spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y.com, com.
1: Easy. Chip, thanks so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. What
0: a, what, a, what You know, I, I enjoy it. You guys are good at this.
2: We have been working on a document for a while and it's our top 50 books of all time.
1: And it's ready. That's it. You can grab our top 50 books where we've ranked our favorite and most impactful books that we've read so far. And, you know, a bit of a spiel on each one. And you can grab a copy for yourself whilst you're in there, and it's a phenomenal document, I
2: reckon. Most of the books we haven't uh, reviewed yet, so I reckon your reading list will be popped up by a few after reading that one. Exactly,
1: man. We won't give away uh, too many spoilers, but there's some absolute juggernauts in that top fifty, as you would expect. Yeah. Head, head to head to slash top fifty, and you can download that uh, that report of the top fifty books of all time, 2018 free! version.
2: All free.